Good morning, and welcome to Simply Science. It's Sunday, January 28th. On today's show, scientists have just discovered a new type of magnetism, and will explore space science at the Discovery Cube. Plus, Chinese scientists are leaving top U.S. universities to take up roles in China. This coverage and more, up next. I'm David, and you're listening to Simply Science. We start off with a fascinating discovery in the world of physics. All magnets we interact with, from fridge magnets to those in electronic devices, are magnetic for the same reason. However, a recent discovery has shown a new, unusual way to make a material magnetic. This is based on a concept conceived in 1966 by Japanese physicist Yosuke Nagaoka. A team of physicists has now observed a version of Nagaoka's predictions in a material only six atoms thick. Here to discuss this further is our correspondent from Simply Science. Yes, David. This discovery, recently published in the journal Nature, marks a significant advance in the search for Nagaoka ferromagnetism. In this type of magnetism, a material magnetizes as the electrons within it minimize their kinetic energy. This is in contrast to traditional magnets, where magnetism arises due to exchange interactions between electrons. Could you elaborate on the difference between traditional ferromagnetism and Nagaoka ferromagnetism? In traditional ferromagnetism, electrons repel each other due to their negative electrical charges. Their lowest energy state finds them far apart, and systems tend to settle into their lowest energy state. In the presence of an external magnetic field, this phenomenon can be strong enough to align electron spins, creating a macroscopic magnetic field within the material. In metals like iron, these electron interactions are so potent that the induced magnetization is permanent, as long as the metal isn't heated too much. Nagaoka ferromagnetism, on the other hand, theorizes a different mechanism. Nagaoka envisioned a two-dimensional lattice where every site on the lattice had just one electron. He then worked out what would happen if you removed one of those electrons under certain conditions. As the lattice's remaining electrons interacted, the hole where the missing electron had been would move around the lattice. The lattice's overall energy would be at its lowest when its electron spins were all aligned, rendering the material ferromagnetic. How did the researchers manage to create this Nagaoka ferromagnetism in their experiment? The researchers synthesized a material from monolayers of the semiconductors molybdenum diselenide and tungsten disulfide. They then applied weak magnetic fields of varying strengths to the material while tracking how many of the material's electron spins aligned with the fields. They found that the material was more prone to aligning with an external magnetic field, behaving more ferromagnetically, only when it had up to 50% more electrons than there were lattice sites. When the lattice had fewer electrons than lattice sites, they saw no signs of ferromagnetism. This was the opposite of what they would have expected to see if standard-issue Nagaoka ferromagnetism had been at work. So, what does this discovery mean for the future of magnetism and its applications? While we won't be seeing these kinetic ferromagnets in everyday use anytime soon, due to the extremely low temperatures required for their operation, this discovery opens up new avenues for probing electrons' behavior in solids. It could even potentially point the way toward a new mechanism for superconductivity. However, 
more research is needed to fully understand and harness this new form of magnetism. That was certainly a fascinating development. Thanks for sharing, Bella. Speaking of fascinating developments, Discovery Cube Orange County in Santa Ana has opened two new space-themed exhibits, offering visitors a closer look at the universe and the science behind it. Artemis Adventures and the Solar System Encounter aim to educate visitors about space exploration through interactive, hands-on activities. Here to delve deeper into this is our correspondent, Michael. Can you tell us more about these exhibits? Certainly, David. Artemis Adventures, named after NASA's current program aiming to establish long-term human presence on the moon, allows visitors to experience what it's like to drive a lunar rover. It also invites them to imagine what life on the moon would be like, eating, sleeping, and traveling. In addition, visitors can drive mini remote-controlled lunar rovers across a detailed model of the moon's surface, following in the footsteps of astronauts from NASA's Apollo missions. That sounds fascinating. What about the Solar System Encounter? The Solar System Encounter is a returning exhibit that features a large-scale model of the sun, planets, and other celestial objects. Visitors can participate in space-themed experiments, find out their weight on other planets, and view images from NASA's James Webb Space Telescope. This year, the images are provided through a collaboration with James Bullock, an astrophysicist and dean of UC Irvine's School of Physical Sciences. These exhibits seem to offer a lot of hands-on learning opportunities. How does this align with the mission of Discovery Cube? Sheree White, Vice President of Marketing at Discovery Cube, stated that their mission is to make learning fun. They aim to provide elements that allow kids to explore, touch, and feel, thereby learning about the world around them. Cindy Diavani, Education Manager for the Discovery Cube, added that space is a popular topic among students, and these exhibits provide an engaging way to teach visitors about chemistry, physics, and other science-related topics. How long will these exhibits be available for visitors? Artemis Adventures is a permanent exhibit, while the Solar System Encounter will be available until March 3rd. Both exhibits are included with the general admission to Discovery Cube. Thanks for the insights, Michael. Now, shifting gears a bit, we've seen a significant trend of Chinese scientists leaving top American universities to take up high-profile roles in China, a shift seen as a boost for Beijing in its race for global talent. Here to discuss this further is our correspondent from Simply Science. Can you tell us more about this trend? Certainly, David. Over the past few years, hundreds of Chinese scientists have switched affiliations from American universities to institutions in China. This includes a range of high-profile individuals from various scientific disciplines. Can you give us some examples of these high-profile individuals who have made the switch? Absolutely. For instance, Tsinghua University recently welcomed back its star twin scientists after they completed their postdoctoral research in North America. Then there's Gao Huajian, an acclaimed physicist who taught at Stanford, who has also joined Tsinghua University. We also have award-winning geometer Sun Song, who left California to take up a position in China. And it's not just limited to Chinese-born scientists. British physicist Zhang Yonghao, after more than 20 years in Britain, has joined China's new National Hypersonic Laboratory in Beijing. That's quite a list. What about the field of biology and medicine? In those fields as well, we have seen similar moves, 
MacArthur genius biochemist Kunliang Guan has left the U.S. for a new role in China. Chen Zhoufeng, a leading expert in the study of itch mechanisms, joined an institute in Shenzhen after his U.S. lab was shut down amid a probe. And then there's Niang Yan, a world-famous structural biologist who has announced her return to China after five years at a top U.S. university. And what about other fields, like data science and energy research? In those areas, too, we see a similar trend. Marine data expert Li Jijin, who has worked for NASA and the U.S. Navy, is now employed at a top university in Shanghai. And top Chinese-Australian scientists Do Shichui and Liu Huakun have joined the University of Shanghai for Science and Technology to help find ways for China to reduce its carbon emissions. This is certainly a significant shift. What could be the potential implications of this trend? This trend could have several implications. For one, it could boost China's scientific research capabilities and help it compete more effectively on the global stage. It could also impact the U.S., which has traditionally been a magnet for global scientific talent. However, the full implications of this trend will only become clear over time. Indeed, this is a development to watch closely. Thanks for your insights, Celeste. Speaking of developments, let's shift our focus to architecture. Bernard Chumi Architects' first large-scale building in China, the Binhai Science Museum, is an architectural marvel spanning 33,000 square meters. Known as the Exploratorium, this avant-garde structure interweaves Tianjin's industrial heritage with cutting-edge technological displays, including rockets destined for celestial exploration. Here to discuss this architectural wonder is our correspondent, Abby. Can you tell us more about the design and purpose of the Exploratorium? Certainly, David. The Exploratorium is part of Tianjin's Binhai Cultural Center and extends beyond conventional museum paradigms. It's multifaceted, hosting cultural gatherings, exhibitions, office spaces, and even dining and retail outlets. The design philosophy behind it eloquently echoes the historical resonance of the area. Interesting. Can you elaborate on the architectural design of the Exploratorium? The Exploratorium unfolds as an intersection of large-scale cones, a nod to the city's industrial saga. The central cone, illuminated from above, links the three tiers of this architectural symphony. A unique ramp spirals visitors to the top, offering a journey through the layers of a modern vertical city. The rooftop unfolds as a promenade, providing panoramic views of the urbanscape. That sounds impressive. How does the design of the Exploratorium reflect the past, present, and future of Tianjin? Bernard Chumi, the architect behind the project, designed the Exploratorium as a building for the past, the present, and the future of Tianjin. This sentiment is profoundly echoed within the Grand Lobby, a surreal cone that links diverse spaces and allows visitors to spiral through the expansive exhibition halls. The design exhibits grandeur with triple-height spaces defining primary circulation zones and different lights and circular light wells evoking a celestial ambiance. What about the sustainability aspect of the design? The cones serve as conduits for even natural light, reducing reliance on artificial illumination and mitigating energy consumption. Their tapered contours concentrate warm air, facilitating summer heat dissipation and winter warmth retention. The minimization of glazing surfaces, except for deliberate programmatic necessities, accentuates the facade's functionality. The perforated metal panels, in tandem with the grand atrium functioning as a solar chimney, not only reduce heat gain but also contribute to a sustainable, 
energy-efficient ambience. That's quite remarkable. Thank you for sharing those insights, Abby. And on that note, we wrap up our stories for today. Thanks for listening to Simply Science. We'll see you back here tomorrow.